a friend of mine, um, you know, from, from Bangladesh, somebody I went to school with, uh, called me up and said, you know, something odd is happening in my home country of Bangladesh. Um, you know, there's uh, there's two million people who've just crossed the border into one of the poorest and, and most overpopulated countries on Earth. Um, and I think they need help. Um, and and I, I heard that you were looking to do humanitarian work. Um, so, you know, here's a crisis you can maybe sink your teeth into. Uh, you know, let me know if you want to come visit. So so I took a month off work. I, I booked a flight and I went to Bangladesh and, and uh, tried to see what I could do to help. Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. I'm Preston Pogue, and on the show today, how Alex Blum found a massive opportunity in a common organic material and built his company Applied Bioplastics after a surprise visit to Bangladesh. I want you to do something for me. And I know that some of you are driving, so it is not possible. But for the rest of you, go outside and walk on grass or feel a plant's leaves. We do these things so often that we do not take the time to think about what grass and plants are made up of. Maybe when you sat in biology class in ninth grade, you could decipher what was found in plant cells. Now, our unconscious has taken over, so seeing grass, seeing plants, is as common as brushing your teeth in the morning. I'm going to ask you to do one more thing for me, and that is to find a plastic product in your environment. As we know, plastic is everywhere, so even those of you in a car will be able to locate plastic. What if I told you that the plastic product you see could be produced using compounds from grass? Yes, the grass you walked on, the plant you felt, has compounds that can be extracted to produce more sustainable and renewable plastic. Bioplastics, as it is called, takes a compound such as cellulose and combines it with a virgin resin to create plastic products. Alex Blum was making a career out of cells when something strange happened. A single conversation that would change his life forever. This conversation took him from Austin, Texas to Bangladesh in search of helping the refugees displaced by the Rohingya genocide in Miramar. His travels took him from filming a documentary to help increase visibility on the issue to meeting someone who would teach him about a process he knew nothing about, bioplastics. Alex Blum is now the founder and CEO of Applied Bioplastics, which takes the plant compound cellulose and combines it with virgin resin to create more efficient, sustainable and renewable plastic products. His story of how he found his way into bioplastics is very unique and definitely unconventional. But regardless, it shows how all of us can find opportunities in sustainability with an open mind. The way that new materials usually come into the world is that a, a grad student has an idea and then they, they file a grant application, they get to work on it for five to 10 years, they, they you know, get a patent and then they commercialize it through uh, you know, help with, uh, with venture capital and other things like that. Um, we, we didn't come into being that way. So I'll, I'll tell you how it all started. Um, I, I'm a salesman by trade. I have been doing uh, 
technology sales uh, for for most of my career prior to that. Um, you know, uh, sold windshield repairs on the side of the road, sold cell phones in hotel rooms. Uh, you know, uh, so I, I dropped out of school in 2009. Uh, I was going to the University of Texas at Austin, right in the middle of the financial crisis. So really good decision making on on right. finances there. Um, right. And uh, and and yeah, so I, I you know moved on uh, uh, to just kind of keeping myself alive. Uh, through that recession by, by, you know, just getting selling gigs and, um, you know, eventually worked my way back into school, graduated, uh, university of Texas 2014, um, and immediately started working in, uh, high tech sales, um, started out with a startup called WP engine, uh, moved on to Amazon and Oracle. Um, and then most recently I worked for a company called thousand eyes, which was, uh, uh acquired by Cisco for a couple billion dollars, uh, about two, three years ago. Um, so that was, it was a really fun, uh, uh, job, you know, selling network monitoring software. Um, and I, I got very good at it. In my second year, I, I closed my entire annual quota in the first two months of the fiscal year, which resulted in a $500,000 commission check. Um, I was 27 years old. I had worked my way through school, so I didn't really have any debt. Um, I was recently divorced. So, you know, everything was just kind of up in the air. And, and I thought to myself, you know, I don't really need this money. I've been doing, really well at this job. Um, I, I have this itch to go make a difference. Um, I don't feel like my job is, is all that satisfying as far as, uh, you know, making a, making a, any sort of difference in the world. Uh, so I think what I'm going to do with this cash is I'm going to donate it to, to charity. And that'll be like the one big thing I, I do. And then I'm going to go right back to my job. Um, so I, I started out with that. I, you know, I donated to uh, a number of local charities here in Austin um, I started an advocacy group so that I could bang my head against the wall of, uh, you know, gun control regulation, other things like that. Um, but, you know, none of that really scratched the itch. And um, a friend of mine, um, you know, from, from Bangladesh, somebody I went to school with, uh, called me up and said, you know, something odd is happening in my home country of Bangladesh. Um, you know, there's uh, there's two million people who've just crossed the border into one of the poorest and, and most overpopulated countries on Earth. Um, and I think they need help. Um, and, and I, I heard that you were looking to do humanitarian work. Um, so, you know, here's a crisis you can maybe sink your teeth into, uh, you know, let me know if you want to come visit. So, so I took a month off work. I, I booked a flight and I went to Bangladesh and, and, uh, tried to see what I could do to help. And, and what I walked into was, was the Rohingya genocide, uh, in Myanmar, um, which, um, you know, I got in trouble for saying this a few years ago. I'm going to say it again now, but, um, the Chinese funded this genocide in order to build an oil pipeline through Myanmar and through the lands of these people called the Rohingya uh, and into the Bay of Bengal. Um, so it's it it all driven by money. But, you know, regardless, the the, the uh, net result here is that two million refugees are now uh, having to be taken care of in, in one of the poorest countries on Earth, which is, you know, uh, creates a lot of challenges. So um, anyways, I ended up in the in the world's largest refugee camp in, in 2018, uh, where I realized I, I don't know anything about this crisis. I don't know anything about, uh, um, you know, how to help these people in a geopolitical way. Um, but one thing that that stuck out to me is that anybody I talked to who wasn't in that part of the world, they didn't know what was, you know, what the Rohingya were, what was going on. So I decided, uh, let, let's change that. Let's make people aware of what's happening over here. Um, and so I filmed a documentary in the world's largest refugee camp in about three weeks for about $200,000. And uh, that film went on to win, uh, you know, best short documentary at a at a festival in London. Uh, it won the World Fest International uh, or the Special Jury Award there uh, in Houston, and was picked up by Amazon, uh, which was pretty crazy. I mean, it was my very first try at, at making a film, uh, and it ended up getting picked up, which I feel like is you know unheard of. Um, oh, wow. And you know, all, all down to the team, right? Like you know, I I had no experience doing this, so it was, it was really cool to 
you know, be a part of a team that created something that was so successful. But um, anyways, um, long story short, I, I, um, I parlayed that into uh, getting the attention of several U.S. senators. Uh, those senators proposed the Burma Human Rights and Freedom Act, which was a package of sanctions on, on Myanmar, uh, you know, trying to force them to end the genocide. Uh, and parts of the, the footage that we captured were used um, at the International Criminal Court at The Hague uh, to, to hold the leaders of Myanmar accountable. Um, so that was a really, you know, interesting trip. Um, and, and what it did was it put me in touch, uh, with the person who would, would change my life, who's, uh, uh Dr. Mubarak Khan. Uh, now Dr. Mubarak Khan is, uh, um, you know, formerly of the Bangladeshi Nuclear Commission. He's a chemist by trade. Um, he's been working for the last like 40 years and he's developed something that was really, really interesting, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But, um, essentially it was a, a preservation of cellulose, uh, that enabled it to be used in other applications. Um, I, so I met him, I, I saw immense potential in applications for these things. And, you know, typically the way things go like this is, is scientists have a hard time commercializing because they're not salespeople, right? right. They, they're not business people, they're scientists, right? So it's rare that you find somebody that has all three, the, the sales, the business acumen, and the scientific uh, expertise. Um, and so Dr. Khan had been facing that problem, which was that he had invented this really cool thing, but had no idea how to build a business around it, how to how to sell it, how to commercialize it. And I thought with my skill set, you know, partnering with him, we, we could create something great together. So I proposed that to him and he said, absolutely not. I've been working on this for 25 years and I've just met you today. What makes you think that I would uh, just give away my baby? Right. Point heard. Uh, and, and I went home, I, you know, and I worked on the, on the movie and, and, uh, went back to my job, but I couldn't get out of my head, this idea that cellulose could be used as a polymer. It is a polymer, um, you know, and, but, but used as a polymer in manufacturing of both homes and, and, and other items. Um, and so eventually I, I, I talked to a bunch of people. I got a bunch of advice. Um, I, I, uh, you know, talked to my, my housemate who I've lived with for the last six years, uh, long before starting applied bioplastics. And he had been looking to start a coffee roasting business uh, on the side. And I said, you know, you could put $200,000 into roasting coffee or you could put $200,000 into trying to build a company with me that, that changes the world. And uh, fortunately for me, he chose option B and that's applied bioplastics. Awesome. Yeah. So that's that's super interesting, right? You, you had a passion. You're, you're obviously in a job that you're making a good bit of money, um, but... It sounds like internally and inside yourself, you're like, I need more. There's a purpose for my life. I have passion for for more than just money. And that kind of took you, you know, from making, I mean, what'd you say, $500,000 in a commission check to going into charity, wanting to to create a bigger impact, um, then going to Bangladesh and, you know, filming a movie because, again, you saw a problem that needed to be solved. And that problem was there wasn't a lot of visibility on what was happening in this genocide. So from there, you got introduced to someone that would ultimately change your life forever. So what I believe is, and how I kind of got into sustainability was there was a one split second of something happened. I heard a conversation. I, I heard someone talk and it was like, wow, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to go into. And it's interesting, Alex, because the more people I talk to in sustainability, they have that same uh, split second reaction where they can remember exactly when their mind shifted and their passion shifted. And they said, hey, I need to do more with my life. Yeah, I'm making a lot of money. I I'm living well. I'm, I'm being able to do a lot of good things, but I can produce and provide so much more to people. So I'm just I'm, I'm thankful for you, Alex, and people like you that 
you know, you were very comfortable. You had a great lifestyle, I'm guessing. Um, you know, you're young. You're in your mid to late 20s. Um, you're, you're making a, a good bit of money. You're working at top companies like Amazon, Oracle, startups. But, and the big but is, you knew that there was more to, to life than just money. I think it's really interesting, too. I mean, you, you worked at Amazon, and then you ended up producing a movie that Amazon picked up. So it's almost like a full circle moment. Um, so that really is, especially because I got fired from Amazon, you know, so oh, wow. and then they ended up buying my movie. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a great little circle. But yeah, man, you know, I, I think for people our age, um, you know, I, I'm not trying to assume yours, but I, I turned 33 in a couple of weeks. Uh, and, and um, you know, what I've, what I've seen across, you know, at least my contacts, my colleagues and whatnot is, is that um, millennials uh, don't love the way that things are going. I mean, the, the whole keeping up with the Joneses thing, you mentioned my lifestyle, right? Like, um, yeah, I mean, I, I got to visit like 25, 26 countries on vacations, not for work, but on vacations throughout my twenties because of the income that I was making. But like, and, and those adventures were awesome. And I wanted to do more of that. Um, but at the same time, like it, it, it felt empty, right? I mean, like you're, you're taking photos so that you can show other people, uh, exactly. you know, you're, you're going, you're, you're buying a nice car so that you can impress your colleagues. Like you, 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 you spend money on fashion because that's what the office culture, you know, uh, requires of you. And, and you go out drinking with your coworkers. So you're spending more than the, the 60 hours a week, uh, that you've right. been working with them. You're, you're, you're spending like 80, 90 hours a week. These people are expected to be your entire social circle. And this is a world that's been built for us by the by the previous generation. And it's supposed to be satisfying because keeping up with the Joneses in the past has been satisfying uh, uh, to, to other generations. Um, but I think the more I talk to people my age, uh, the more I, I get the sense that this world isn't working for most of us. Uh, right. this, this mindless consumption isn't working for most of us. And so I feel extraordinarily fortunate to have really, I mean, like bungled my way into leading a bioplastics firm. Like I, I had no intention of starting a company. I, I really had no intention of making a movie when I got that commission. I, I just wanted to help people, right? Like I, I thought I was just going to go visit and maybe like donate some money and 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 that would be it. Um, but because of the people around me, the people who are dissatisfied with the way that things are going um, and, 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 you know, seeing their passion and realizing that there was a way for me to at least stick my toe into helping, um, that, that inspired me. Right. And, and, um, and again, th there was never an intent to start a business. I, I really don't like the idea of, of, you know, going to these already, you know, wealthy, you know, funds, right. And, and saying, Hey, let me help you make more money with my business. Right. Like, um, you know, the same thing as, as to why, you know, sales is unsatisfying is like, Sure, maybe you're helping a, you know somebody solve a problem. Thousand Eyes is a great example. Um, you know, we reduced downtime for corporate websites, right? And so, what I was doing, if you break it down, there is I'm making my CEO and founder a whole bunch of money by closing contracts for him, and I'm helping the the customer company save you know anywhere from a few hundred to a few million dollars, uh, you know, a month because their their downtime is less. But what am I doing for myself? What am I doing for the world, right? I'm, I'm increasing the profit margin of two companies and making a commission check for myself. But like, what value have I created for the community, for for the planet, for the species, for for my country? Um, you know, it, it seems like there's there's only three beneficiaries there, um, and and none of them I particularly care about. 
right? Like um, those those three recipients of the the benefit of my work are not inspiring to me. So it, it, it made me not want to keep doing what I was doing, made me sick of the rat race and sick of the keeping up with the Joneses. And, and so this, this whole charity push was an outlet for myself to make me feel like what I was doing mattered to someone. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you're absolutely correct. You know, generations prior, so I'm, I'm Gen Z, so I'm, I'm one step, one step behind you, but for millennials and Gen Z, Generations like the baby boomers and and those generations, they grew up, hey, work a job for your whole life, you know, get a steady income, be safe, and you'll be fine. And again, keeping it with the Joneses. But it's just shifted so much because now you have to, I mean, for me, it's like I have to be able to make an impact or I'm I'm not happy. I've got to see that I'm making change. So that's what's changed. And it's it's really cool to see, you know, younger people having that mindset and and Again, smart people like yourself, Alex, using your talents and starting a business. So that's what I'll get into next, which is um, you touched on the story of how Applied Bioplastics was created. But if I was someone on the on the side of the road um, and let's say that um, I say, hey, Alex, what do you do for a living? And you say, oh, I run this company called Applied Bioplastics. And I'm like, oh, Bioplastics, what is that? How would you describe what you do and what your company is? Certainly. Well, first, I would say I'm part of the team at Applied Bioplastics. Um, you know, I, I may be the CEO, but um, I think the company would run just fine without me. Uh, you know, we've got a ton of really talented scientists, salespeople, researchers, operations folks. Um, I, I just have the title, right? So um, I definitely wouldn't say I, I run it, but I, I'd say I'm part of the team at Applied Bioplastics, which makes uh, a durable biocomposites for manufacturers. And I know that's super jargony, but essentially uh, what we do is we take plastic and we make it better by adding plant materials that are sustainable. Um, it, it's that's as simple as I can keep it. Uh, the other thing we do is we build shelters for refugees out of local plant fiber um, and off the shelf ingredients. Um, that's that's the, the simplest, the, the, the simplest and, and most concise nut I can put it down into. Right. So you're taking you're using, again, this this material cellulose and combining it right with, let's say, a virgin resin. And through that connection, it's producing a more sustainable, more renewable um, plastic product. Um, This you touched on, you know, building these these transitional houses for, um, I guess, national uh, natural disasters. Again, through research, um, I, I came across that you call that the better board. Is that still what that's called? Yeah, so there's a there's a, a super brand and a sub brand. Uh, the the um, the product line is called Biothermoset Resin Board or Better Board, um, and then we have sub sub brands uh, that actually depend on the type of material used. Um, so the one for Bangladesh, the one that is currently being used to house the Rohingya refugees, is called Jutin because it is made out of jute. And it has the form factor of corrugated tin, so jute in, right? Um, and and so that's uh, that's what's been deployed there. However, you know we're looking at other things like you know hemp board um, and bagasse board, and you know what, whatever else is is nearby. Um, so let me let me talk a little bit about the better board product line and, and why it's important. And you know, um, essentially, better board is made out of local labor that is unskilled. It does not require any power to produce nor specialized tools. Um, it doesn't even require specialized chemicals or materials. The uh, thermoset resin that used is really standard. The preservative that we've we've made for the cellulose is all off the shelf chemicals. Now, they, you know, so no custom molecules. It comes in a spray bottle. 
and essentially the way that better board is made is you take a sheet of rough spun cloth. So like burlap, um, you know, anything like that, which by the way, the, the reason that the, the cloth is important, number one, it's a reinforcement, but number two, it is rough spun. It does not require any machinery to make. People have been weaving plant material together to make cloth for thousands and thousands of years. So the material required to make better board is available on every single continent on earth. And that'll be important later. Um, so we take that cloth and we spray it with our preservative chemicals. So it's just a surface treatment. There's no like changing the cellulose molecule or anything else like that, which is also true for our other product line. And that's why I'm bringing it up now. Um, and, and once you've, you've, you've set the preservative spray on it, you put it in your mold, which is two pieces of metal. Um, you paint resin on top of it and then you um, close up the mold and then you wait an hour to two hours. Um, the, the thermoset reaction occurs uh, and then you unmold it and there you go. You've got a wall and it's less than two hours. Right. And you can, you can prepare hundreds of these at once. I mean, basically we, the first village that we put up for the victims of the Rohingya genocide took a total of six days, including deployment and construction. Um, so like making the material, shipping the material, setting up the material into housing that could then be like literally walked into and used six days. Um, so not only is it disaster responsive because it can, be produced extremely rapidly, um, but it actually keeps aid dollars in the situation where they're being deployed to. So the main problem with aid dollars during disasters or, or uh, you know, the, the movement of refugees, population movement, unplanned population movement, um, is that when you put in aid dollars to those communities, they leave immediately, right? Like the, the aid dollars go in and then they go right back out to buy supplies. Now, that would be fine except for the fact that refugees are never dumped in the backyard of billionaires, right? They get dumped on other poor people, right? And, and so those other poor people are also internally displaced within their own country or within their own village because now they have to take care of these refugees, right? Um, and they don't really have a lot of say in the matter because, again, they're poor. They don't have political power to say, hey, put these guys somewhere else, right? So, so now you have two populations of disadvantaged people who have been displaced, Right. And 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 nobody's happy. Right. The, the refugees don't want to be there. And the host community really doesn't want them to be there either. Right. I mean, they're, they're, you know, look no further than than Greece. About two, two and a half years ago, uh, some disgruntled guy who ran a tourist focused business burnt down a thousand refugee shelters, uh, you know, because he was upset that he'd lost his tourism dollars because the you know, the refugees had gotten dumped in his backyard. Right. So and, and that's perfectly reasonable on, on his part. I mean, obviously, ours, I'm not endorsing arson right now, but, you know, for him to be angry, that's normal. Right. So how do we reduce that anger? How do we make these communities work better together? It's by keeping those aid dollars in the situation. Right. Essentially, you're, you're, you're buying supplies locally. You're buying labor locally and you're creating from that housing for both the host community and the refugees. Um, so it creates this virtuous circle where, you know, you, you can even provide work for the host community or for the refugees. Um, you know, I, I happen to bring the, the you know, ha happen to think that, that um, you know, work brings dignity um, and, and sitting in a, in a refugee camp waiting to be handed your next meal is it's not, you know, it's not psychologically good for people. Right. And, and so, you know, being able to contribute to your community, that feels good. At least that feels good for me. So offering the option to people to let them participate in the building of structures that their community gets to live in is something that's incredibly valuable from a psychological perspective. 
Also, like I said, you know, $8 coming in, keep, yeah, it, it, it builds community pride. Exactly. Um, and, and, and it upgrades the housing in, in many instances. Like when we built our, our refugee uh, a village, we also built a village for the host community because it was an upgrade to what they were living in at the time. Right. So, so that's what the purpose of better board is. Um, that, that's why we make it is, um, you know, we, we sell it at, uh, you know, cost plus one sort of thing. You know, I'm not trying to get rich off of refugees. I like sleeping at night. Um, so, you know, we, we, you know, the other thing here is, you know, for your listeners, if you have any contacts in government emergency housing, um, we want to talk to them. And the reason we want to talk to them is I'm not trying to make money off you. What I'd like to do is I'd like to license you this, this solution for a dollar a house. You can house a, a group of 10 people for about a thousand dollars total. The, the whole shelter is a thousand dollars. I want $1 from you per shelter. And I will teach you how to make this stuff in your home country. I'll teach you how to warehouse it in your home country. Flat packs, right? So you can stack up. You can make it really dense and store it somewhere and easily deploy it in the case of an emergency, right? So, um, again, listeners, if you have government contacts in the emergency or transitional housing space, please send them to Applied Bioplastics. We are hoping to license that technology to government so that we can rapidly put roofs overheads in times of disaster. Yeah, I would say um, organizations like Feed My Starving Children, you get a group of people together to pack food, um, again, for emergency relief. And I did this a lot growing up through through my school, and it was really cool to see that you're making an impact. I see no reason why Better Board can't be something very similar, right? With Feed My Starving Children or like organizations, you know, you're, you're creating food and creating package of food to send off for new nutrition for these people that have just gone through a natural disaster. So better board should be the same thing. You have churches, you have different communities that will go out into these places like Kenya or like, um, like you're saying, Bangladesh or places that need transitional housing, need uh, nutrition. So why not teach them how to use this stuff? And better board seems like it's easy enough to learn, easy enough to use. So, I, I see no reason why Better Board could not be a solution, just like Feed My Starving Children, which is a great organization. The next thing I would say is, just from hearing you talk, it sounds like this transitional housing, it could be, Better Board could be used as a solution for the homeless crisis in the U.S., right? in On the West Coast, in a place like San Francisco, as we all know, is, is just terrible with, with tent cities and just um, the homeless population just continues and continues to grow. So, I see better board as a solution in in those communities communities as well. I mean, you might disagree, you might agree, but just from hearing you talk, it's like, wow, this this could be a solution. And you know, maybe getting the government involved. I'm um, in a place like San Francisco because all I know is lawmakers in California and in these places they are trying to find a solution. They 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 continue to try to find a solution, and nothing is working. So, better board might be that solution. I, I guess, be, you know, it, it might be Preston. And, and um, I think that there's there's more to that to, to think about and happy to think through a little bit here. But, you know, Better Board's just a building material. Right. Um, what what needs to be there to help the homeless population is not just a, a building material. There needs to be the will and the funding to build these people homes. And, and furthermore, you know, there are a number of communities across the United States that have built uh, affordable housing or, or, you know, you know, provisioned hotel rooms, uh, for the homeless, you know, get them off the streets, especially in inclement weather. Um, and, and those are all really admirable, um, you know, initiatives. The issue is not 
necessarily the availability of housing to these folks. Because there's there's options like tiny homes, like I said, you know, buying old old hotels and putting them up there. Uh, there's also the problem of you know non-compliant folks, like like uh, you know folks who are are too mentally ill to to take advantage of of any sort of housing solution that's proposed. And I think we have to think about homelessness as, as a societal problem rather than a crime or a housing problem. Um, you know, we, we need to make, a fa- you know, housing more affordable as a, as a first step, right? Like, um, I know that people don't like price caps or, you know, there are certain people who argue against price caps. But honestly, housing is a human right um, and, and it should be treated in that way. And, and, you know, municipalities and governments that fall down on ensuring that that human right is provided to everyone in their in their jurisdiction should be punished for that, right? I mean, these these are this, this is uh, in in the richest country on earth. We really shouldn't have you know people like you and I who can't afford a home. You realize I'm I'm the CEO of a 21 person company. I have been making lots of money for the last for my entire working life. You know, I can't afford a home in my in my city of Austin. And I probably won't be able to for several years, right? I'm 33 years old. What happened to the American dream? Now, right. I, personally, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to afford the, the nice home you see behind me as a renter. Um, I've got a nice place to stay. That's cool. Uh, but, uh, you know, really the homelessness issue is, is, is a societal problem, as I said at the start here. And I think that, um, you know, while better board could potentially be a solution, there's a whole raft of other things that we need to do, including, uh, you know, mental health care in this country. I mean, you know, your options right now, if you're mentally ill, are hospital or jail. And it used to be that we had specialized places that were free for those that were mentally ill, sanitariums, things like that. Now, obviously, there were there were many problems with them back in the 70s and 80s, and that's why we stopped doing them. But I think we should have reformed them rather than tossing them out the window, right? We need those places. People get sick, you know, and they need care. Uh, so I don't want to position Better Board as the solution to the to the homelessness problem. I think it could potentially be useful in the construction of, you know, small modular homes and stuff like that. But it's, it, it's you know, there's no silver bullet for homelessness. What you need is silver buckshot. Right. And and maybe we could be one of those pellets. But really, it needs to be a a wide and spreadable and, and you know, a comprehensive strategy. Uh, you know, towards towards that problem. So I don't want to, you know, sit up here on my high horse and say, I've got the solution to homelessness. You know what I mean? But I do appreciate your idea on that on that matter. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's more complex than, than what I'm, I'm making it out to be. Definitely. Um, I guess the next thing would be we talked about better board. So what's the other side of the business that applied bioplastics does? Um, I, I think I, th- I think I touched on it earlier about you know, combining your material cellulose with a virgin resin and, and using that to, to produce plastic products. So could you talk on that a little bit and about that part of your business? Certainly. So so as I've mentioned, the, the better board side of the business is not intended to be the profitable side of our business. That is our uh, ESG thing that we're doing because we can and because it's the right thing to do. Um, we have a, a business business that actually is intended to make money uh, which is what you're describing. So the other uh, product category that we have is called BioFi, uh, biofiber, BioFi. Um, so that is uh, essentially taking the same principle of doing a surface treatment on cellulose to make it bond with other plastics, right? Uh, the same idea as BetterBoard, slightly different form factor, vastly different application, right? So essentially, there are two types of bioplastics in the world besides what applied bioplastics make. The first one 
is a starch and cellulose combination. Um, you know, there's a bunch of different ways to slice that. There's a bunch of different companies that'll tell you that they're different on that matter, but largely they're combining starch and cellulose, which breaks down in water, which is a good thing. Um, so you can make drinking straws with that. You can make grocery bags with that. Uh, you can make, you know, silverware or packaging, other things like that. Um, Really cool idea. Ultimately, it falls down on, on two areas. Um, one of them is price, as usual. Um, it's too expensive to, to make that stuff. Um, and, and the second one is, is really end of life. And, and this is the thing that most biodegradable plastics entrepreneurs don't want you to ask about uh, because they don't have a good answer. The question is, right. how much methane emissions does your plastic produce when it degrades? And I have not yet heard a good answer on that uh, because it, it's a lot is generally the answer. So biodegradable plastics, you burn, you need to go away. Um, honestly, like they, like you've got a quarter, quarter of a million years of human history, written human history or, or recorded human history uh, without plastics. Right. And in the last 50 to 60 years, we've, we've developed two kinds of plastic, um, two, two major categories. The first one is packaging and single use plastics. There is no use for that. It needs to go away. Uh, there's no good way to do that that doesn't harm the environment. And like I said, we've got a quarter million years of history that points to the fact that we do not need that polymer, right? Um, now, on the other side of things is the total conversion of cellulose, guys, which I'll get into in a second. But I want to point out the reason that they exist first and the reason that we exist as well. Um, the other half of the plastic that we've invented in the last 50 years is really, really useful. And I'm talking about like, I assume you own a car, Preston, it probably gets around 45, 50 miles to the gallon, right? It's an efficient vehicle. Um, so, so essentially the reason for that is because it's like 90% plastic, man. <laughs> we, we, we changed these steel bodied, steel accoutremented uh, and wooden cars into mostly plastic and a little bit of metal for the engine, right? Um, so that plastic's really freaking important. We need that. We need that plastic. We need the ability to produce these these wonderful cell phones that, you know, for only a thousand dollars gives you access to the rest of the world. Right. That's because of plastic. If you had to make that out of a you know rarer material or a metal, they'd be incredibly heavy. They'd be easy to break. You know, there's there's all these problems with it. Right. So look around yourself right now and look at all the durable plastic that you have on your desk that's behind you. I mean, I can see multiple things made out of out of this kind of plastic behind you um, and 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 realize that this stuff is critical to the way that we live today. Um, it, it's critical to the cheap luxury that many people are able to enjoy, not only in the United States, not only in the West, but but everywhere, right? Um, so that plastic is not so easily replaced and it's not so easily re re replaced because it's cheap. Oh my God, is it cheap, right? Um, and so so that's, that's, that's the really sticky issue that the total conversion of cellulose guys are trying to solve. So what they do is they take cellulose they break it down, they gasify it, they plasmify it, and then it becomes a resin again, right? So basically they're doing what happened to the dinosaurs, but really, really fast. Like rather than millions of years compressing it down into oil, they're hydrolyzing or pyrolyzing uh, cellulose and turning it into oil that then gets used in plastics. Really super cool idea. Takes us away from extraction, uh, you know, drilling for oil, then refining it into plastics. Um, but the, there's, there's problems with that too. And they're really largely the same as the other plastics, unfortunately, which is it's too expensive. Um, you know, there's a, sort of a competitor out there for us. They raised $144 million and it took them 10 years to build their plant. And they still haven't produced any plastic yet. But their plastic, once they start producing it, is going to have to reflect the cost 
of $144 million raised and spent and 10 years of work to build their plant, right? So their, their plastic's going to be five, six, seven thousand $7,000 a metric ton, and they're trying to compete with petroleum-based plastic that's like $1,200 a metric ton. Yes. You see where the problem is, right? Um, it, it's really hard. Um, and so what we've done, and I'm sorry to make this so long-winded, but we've taken a third path, which is cellulose in and of itself is a polymer. It doesn't behave like other polymers in that it is porous, it's, hydroph- it's hydrophilic, it absorbs water, right? When you try to mix that with other plastics, guess what happened? You're, you're mixing oil and water. They don't, they don't work. It doesn't work. Um, so what we've done is solve that issue by, by applying a hydrophobic coating uh, to cellulosic mo- molecules after drying and homogenizing them. And what that results in is a carbon negative filler that can be used for other plastics. Now, let me tell you why that's important. Uh, because all, all I've told you is I've, I've made uh, uh, plant material waterproof. Congratulations, right? <laughs> it's not that great. Uh, but here's the, here's the effect of this. So we can get this cellulose very inexpensively. Um, we're able to use all but two types of cellulose in the world. First one we don't use is bagasse. Bagasse is spent sugar cane. The sugar content is too high. Um, if we try to put it into an extruder, it's going to burn. It's going to smell bad. Um, and the second one is marijuana stocks. Um, as much as everybody you know loves marijuana uh, in the United States, it's not exactly popular in other parts of the world. I don't want to deal with the regulatory stuff of including that in my plastic. So while it's not a te- technical limitation, it is a legal and societal uh, you know limitation for us. So those are the two things we won't use, but we'll use anything else. And by anything else, I mean agricultural waste cover crops, invasive species. Like we can do additional social benefit by intaking unwanted plant matter and turning it into something useful. Um, so as a result of that, especially because the feedstock is generally unwanted plant material, um, we're able to, to have much lower prices than any other bioplastics firm on the planet. Um, so we're actually competitive with virgin plastics. Remember, I told you the biggest problem with plastic is it's too cheap to replace. Well, guess what? We're cheaper by a lot. Um, so that's that's one thing, right? Um, and then the second piece is this. Um, when you mix our carbon negative fiber additive with virgin plastics, it cuts out about half of the CO2 associated with producing those, those thermoplastics um, while making it cheaper, right? So the, the plastic producer is incentivized to add more fiber because the more fiber they do, the more their pro- profit margin grows and the more their, far- their, their carbon footprint shrinks. Uh, you know, so, so the carbon footprint shrinks, the, the price also goes down. The second thing is we're also compatible with recycled resins. So it's not just virgin resins we partner with. We're able to match this with recycled resins. Now, there's two problems with recycled resins. Number one, there's not enough of them. And number two, uh, they, they're kind of mechanically weak compared to virgin plastics. So what we've done essentially is, is um, by adding this cellulosic matrix, we make the plastic stronger and therefore more useful. And we increase the supplies of it because we're replacing half the mass. So there's, you know, there's more plastic available, right? And then lastly, with those total conversion of biomass, cellulose uh, uh, producers that I was mentioning, the people who do the, 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 the complete 100% bioplastic, we're able to help them too. As I mentioned, their stuff is way too expensive for the market. Ours is substantially cheaper than the market. So if you mesh the two, you create something that is closer to competitive costs. So essentially applied bioplastics functions as the applied partner 
for every single type of plastic producer on earth and produces a feedstock for every single injection molder on earth. If you make something that is durable plastic, we can make it cheaper and greener. If you produce plastic, we can make your products cheaper and greener. So that's where we fit. That's our second product line. And then, of course, in order to prove product market fit, we're actually manufacturing the pelletized plastic of our own. So, you know, we do sell uh, uh, plastics derived from BioFi, but our main business model is to sell BioFi to plastics producers and then teach them or license them the compounding technology that we've invented, which enables you to put highly burnable cellulose into very high temperature plastic without burning anything and come out with good mechanical properties. How we, how we connected is, is through Rodney Davenport, who was on the show last week. And you know, what he's doing at CH3 Solutions is where I learned what bioplastics were and what your company is, Alex. And I, I found it very interesting when he showed me prototypes using this biofile and then using the virgin resin that they used combined and what material it came out. Because when he was talking to me about it, I said, you know, Rodney, is, is it going to be as strong? Is it going to be as durable? Um, because you're adding in this other material. You know, I was kind of skeptical in the whole process. But, you know, I said, no, here, feel it, you know, feel it, step on it, um, you know, bounce the ball on it, whatever you want to do. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. I mean, you have created something that is renewable. It is sustainable. Um, and you're using less of that virgin resin, which you're cutting down the CO2 emissions, which is also incredible. And it's got a pretty cool look to it as well. And that, that was something that um, I, I talked to Rodney about because one of the companies that, that they produce for is a company called Swiss Tracks. And Swiss Tracks produces garage flooring or, or plain hanger flooring. I said, you know, Rodney, one of your competitors at CH3, I mean, at, at Swiss Tracks is epoxy flooring. So the look of, of what Alex and Applied Bioplastics has, has given you is epoxy look. And this might be a new product that you go into, new product line. So I, I thought that was really cool when I was introduced to, to what you do. So I guess let's take it back to biology class for a second and, and take it back to, you know, what, what cellulose really is. Because when I when I began researching uh, applied bioplastics and cellulose, um, it really took me back to middle school and high school and, and just learning about, you know, plant cells and their cell walls and um, the different chemical properties of plants. And um, what I learned was cellulose is the most organic material found um, in the world. I mean, it is it is everywhere. So. All that to say, could you explain exactly what cellulose is? I mean, we've talked about it a lot, but what cellulose is and where it's found um, on plants? Sure. So, so cellulose is the most fundamental building block of plants. It's like got a bit of a square structure cellularly. But it, the reason that that's important is that it, it literally is why grass stands up, right? It's the, it's the, the structural material that makes plants, which by the way, is why it makes for strong plastic, right? It, it's actually sort of designed, sort of built to be something that connects with itself. So when you grind it up and you put it into a, a, you know, a solution, it finds itself, it finds other molecules of itself and it forms weak atomic bonds just by touching. Right. Um, so that's really neat. Right. Like this is something that's naturally occurring in nature. It's essentially biomimicry on our part that we're saying, how does a tree stand up? OK, let's apply that to plastic. Right. Like let's take, say, like a weak plastic, like recycled plastic, and let's make it stand up straighter by using 
the exact same structures found in nature. So, you know, cellulose is found literally everywhere. I think the, the only continent that doesn't have cellulose readily available is Antarctica. And there's still cellulose on Antarctica. It's just buried under a layer of ice, right? So um, that's the cool thing, man, is, is you can look out your window right now. I just did. My window's right here. And right. I can see stuff that I can use for for my process, right? And and um, so the, the earth produces about a trillion metric tons of cellulose every year without our help. Then we also farm more, right? So, you know, it's not like we're ever going to run out. And that's one of the biggest things with bioplastics, Preston, is unfortunately, you know, all of the first attempts and forays into using cellulose as a, as a building block for, for, uh, for bioplastics resulted in companies using a single source of cellulose, right? Like, oh, the particular chemical composition of this particular mushroom or this particular algae um, is, is ideal for my process, so I'm going to use that. Now, what happens if you get a blight on what, like, or, or some sort of uh, uh, you know, communicable, communicable disease between the, the, the things that you're using, right? Well, you're screwed. Right. Or, or, you know, what, what if you get a huge order and, and you, you can't get enough, you know, fertilizer in time or something like that? You're screwed. You know, so there's a lot of ways that you can mess up by being beholden to a single source of cellulose. Um, and, and when I looked at, at what Dr. Khan had created with jute, because that's where this all started was Indian jute. It's very high in cellulose compared to other plants. Um, you know, there's also lignin and hemicellulose and sugars and a bunch of other things in plants, right? Um, but but he picked jute because A, it's very common to his home country, and B, it has a very high cellulose content uh, compared to other plants. That was neat. But until I realized, until our team realized that this could be done with a number of other different sources of cellulose, it wasn't a viable business. Uh, because the reality is you can't be relying on a single country or a single species uh, to, to source your cellulose for, a, for a, a, you know, a massive business. If you intend to scale, you need to be able to draw your materials from anywhere. And so the reality that we, we, we came to was that we needed to prepare ourselves as a business to not just sell plastics in Asia, because if, you know, if we were only relying on jute forever, then you know, there's, we're probably not going to run out of jute in India and Bangladesh. It's, it's planted as a cover crop for rice. So it renitrogenates the soil and, and is, you know, it's necessary to plant, right? So it's not like we're asking people to, you know, cut down trees so that they can grow jute for us. It's already grown. Uh, there's not really an off taker for the amount of jute that's produced in India and Bangladesh. So we're, we're helping by, by paying fair trade prices for a depressed feedstock. We don't have to do that, but we're doing that because it's the right thing to do. Um, and, and anyways, long story short, if we only wanted to sell in Asia, jute would be fine, but there need to be other sources of cellulose if you want to take a company global. Um, so hemp for North America, flax for Europe. I mean, there's, there's a number of different sources, uh, that we want to, uh, um, you know, activate upon because, um, you know, we don't want to be beholden to any single source, uh, because that can cause ecological damage. It can cause business damage if something unexpected happens. And I'm sorry, I've gotten way off of the the question, which is what is cellulose? Cellulose is anything that, uh, um, you know, that grows that isn't an animal. Basically every single plant is filled with cellulose is, is at least like 30% cellulose, if not more. Uh, and it, and it functions as that skeleton. So anyways, got a little off track there. I apologize, but, um, but yeah, I mean, diversifying your sources of cellulose for bioplastic companies is one of the stickiest issues, uh, that, that most, most companies haven't solved and that we have. 
No, no, I'm, I'm glad you went deep into that because that was a question I was going to ask. And where do you obtain cellulose? And you broke that down perfectly. Having different sources in different areas of the world is very important as, again, as you scale and as you hit different markets. Sorry to interrupt there. I, I, I was just going to say there's, there's one more consideration about that cellulose and sourcing it internationally. Um, and that is this. You cannot ship low bulk density cellulose long distances or you will lose your cash and carbon advantage. Think about it. If you were to like mow your lawn and then stuff all that in a bag and then ship that to India, that would cost you $500 to ship your lawn clippings to India, right? Um, Much less the cost of the actual fiber and the CO2 cost of the the cargo container and the ship that you put it, right? Um, so, so essentially in order to be a functional bioplastics business, you cannot, cannot, cannot have a single source and a single factory. This biofi material that, that you're producing in house, are you selling that material yet? Or is that still being, um, produced in house and prototypes being made, but not actually on the market yet? Is that, is that being produced yet? Yeah, so we actually uh, we have several grades of our plastic that are available for purchase on the Node platform, which is K N O D E. Um, so it's a it's essentially a materials and plastic storefront online. Um, so those are available now for purchase. Um, we also are doing custom development with a number of different firms for specific grades that they need for their use cases. Uh, we're also in multiple paid pilots with uh, a number of plastic producers who are our ultimate goal, that licensing agreement where we can uh, sell the treated fiber and teach the compounding method to plastic producers. So that's beginning to get some traction as well. In December, we made our first sale, uh, direct sale, not through the node platform. Um, you know, smaller sale, of course, uh, you know, being our first, but, um, you know, the customer has a uh, uh, you know, significant opportunity for us to, to expand uh, with them. And then uh, we also signed our first distributorship agreement uh, for a plastics distributor in India. Um, I think later this month, we'll be, we'll be signing our second distributorship agreement with a U.S.-based uh, multinational plastic distributor. Um, and then lastly, uh, over the last two days, we have received uh, two major uh, letters of interest from two major corporations, um, each of which uh, has value in excess of half a million dollars a year. One, one of them is about a half a million dollars a year. The other one is, is several millions, of, uh, several millions of dollars uh, per year uh, for for housing and siting uh, made out of the biofi material. So really exciting traction that's occurred recently. We actually had to make three senior sales hires to handle all the demand that we've got. Um, you know, in in the last three months. Uh, so it's getting to the point where we can't necessarily handle the demand that we're getting. And that's actually why we're fundraising is, uh, you know, we, we've raised about $1.3 million over the course of three years. Doesn't seem like a whole lot of money, but we've managed to build a team of 21 using that money. And, uh, you know, we'll be, we'll be uh, you know, raising over the next uh, probably three to six months, uh, both from VC firms and the general public on a platform called Raise Green. Raise Green is a, a crowdfunding platform for climate interested investors. The uh, the uh, uh, minimum check size is one thousand um, dollars, and uh, and yeah, we're we're looking to raise another one point two one point three million dollars on that platform so that we can continue to service the demand that we've been getting. But it's a really exciting time at Applied Bioplastics. Finally, having broken the seal off of that. Uh, that revenue uh, and and getting to commercialization. 
Right. So kind of walk me through your your processing of this BioFi. I mean, are you are you processing everything in house or are you having to go outside and use other um, organizations, other manufacturers to, you know, do different parts of the process? Or are you having everything that you need in-house and producing that for BioFi? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. It kind of goes into what I was saying earlier about the micro facilities. Um, So we have a a lab in Bangladesh and we have a lab in Maharashtra, India. Um, But uh, neither of them is capable of producing the amounts that we're being asked for right now. So you're absolutely right. We're using a set of contract manufacturers in order to produce our material. We've got one guy that gathers and dries the fiber. We've got somebody else that chops the fiber. We have somebody else that applies the, the hydrophobic coating and yet another one that compounds it into the final plastic pellet. Um, With all that, remember I was talking about the price advantage that we have uh, on both virgin plastics and other bioplastics. Even with having to pay shipping four different times before it gets to the customer and four different vendors, we're breaking even today. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's pretty incredible. This funding that you're looking at, are you at some point, are you wanting to bring everything in house or are you kind of content at, you know, still using those contracts? (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely not content. Absolutely not content. Yeah. No, um, we, we intend to uh, kind of accordion close that, that whole big chain I was just describing. So the one thing that we don't want to do in-house is the compounding uh, because that requires specialized equipment. And our thesis internal to applied bioplastics is that if you can't do it off the shelf, it's not worth doing. Um, and so we're not going to go buy a big twin screw extruder to compound our own plastics that costs three quarters of a million dollars. Right. Um, so that's really not, uh, you know, a good use of our investors funds. What we want to do is build these micro facilities. So, so the first thing we're going to do when we have the money for it is build a $500,000 microfiber processing facility that will have the throughput that's necessary to serve the demand that we have today. That facility is where we're going to work out the bugs, you know, figure out how to duplicate the process across multiple things, train employees so that they can train more employees. Um, And then, you know, our next round, which is our first price round, uh, should be uh, uh, opening up in Q3 or Q4 of this year um, is we're going to be looking to to raise the funds to do a massive expansion. Our, Our goal is to be at, you know, one to three million dollars in annual recurring revenue uh, and raise at a 40 to 60 million dollar valuation enough money to establish 10 of these facilities after we have established our first one and worked out all the kinks. Right. So we've done site selection. We've got all the vendors in place. We're ready to go on establishing our first fiber treatment facility. We're just waiting on funds. It's interesting, Alex, and I'll get into this a little bit. I grew up in a town called uh, Dalton, Georgia, which as many people know is the carpet capital of the world. It's becoming a, a huge, huge player in the turf, artificial turf market as well. And growing up and hearing stories about companies like Shaw Industries, like Mohawk Industries, like uh, now Engineered Floors, when they were starting out, each of them did one part of the process and they had to outsource different parts of the process to other companies. Obviously, now they're huge. I mean, Shaw Industries is owned by... Uh, um, Berkshire Hathaway. Wow. Um, so obviously massive, one of the largest carpet ma- manufacturers in the world. But starting out, just as you're saying, just as applied bioplastics is in bioplastics, you know, they had to use contract manufacturers to do other parts of the process. People became extremely wealthy in the Dalton area and the surrounding area because they were able to give Shaw 
these small parts of the process and in, in creating the, the carpet, whether that's the backing or the coating or whatever it is. So that's interesting. Also, the last company I worked for, large, um, one of the largest um, artificial turf landscaping companies in the world, they um, only did one part of the process in manufacturing. And now um, after you know merging with another company, they're able to do the whole process from beginning to end. So I've seen firsthand how important it is to have everything in house and how efficient everything make everything is is produced and how um, you know cost prohibitive it is. So that's super interesting to kind of tie back to different industries and in what you're doing. Thinking about virgin resin companies and again working with Rodney, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with virgin resin. Do you see these companies as competitors or more of partners in the future? Um, because obviously to create BioFi, you're using virgin resin and you're using um, your, your plant-based material. Yeah. So to, to answer that question, um, you know, yes, we're looking to to partner with uh, major polymers producers. So right now we're, we're doing pilots with a recycled plastics maker, a virgin plastics maker, and a bioplastics maker with the express goal of partnering with them uh, through a licensing agreement where they purchase our fiber and combine it with uh, with whatever plastic that they're producing. So you're absolutely right in thinking that we do not see the rest of the plastics market as competitors. We make a co-feed stock. We make a polymerized cellulose co-feed stock. They don't do that stuff, right? Like, um, you know, we, we were approached, um, you know, about six months ago by a major plastics producer who said exactly this. We saw you pitch in an industry event a year and a half ago, said, oh, that's easy and attempted to duplicate what you're doing. Uh, and it cost us about $2 million and a year of work, and we failed. We couldn't do it. Um, and so now we're coming to you and asking you if we could run a pilot with you because we can't figure out how to do what you did, uh, but we really want it, right? Um, and so that's that's humorous to me that they that they made the attempt, but it, it, it illustrates my point, which is that like plastics companies are not cellulose processors, Right. It's not their core competency. They can't do that stuff. Right. They need us. Um, they, they need a partner whose, whose core competency is the processing, gathering, drying, treating of cellulose uh, so that they have a supplier who's consistent in quality uh, and, and, and quantity uh, that they can rely upon while they're trying to make uh, a fiber based biocomposites. Right. So um, seeing the 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 oil companies as the bad guys, right? I mean, I think that's what a lot of people in sustainability think is the oil companies are the bad guys. Well, really, they they provide an essential service, right? They they provide an essential material, like we talked about at the at the top of the hour here. Um, you know, your your car gets forty five miles to the gallon because of them, so they're bad guys, but they're not. You know, we, they they provide a material that is necessary for the world that we live in today. Um, and and no, they have not been very good stewards of the environment, but they're trying to get better. And I think the, the most short-sighted thing to do would be to get up on my ideological high horse and say, you're bad guys. You've done bad things in the past. And so I don't want to work with you. In fact, I'm going to compete with you and I'll put you out of business. The reality is that companies like Dow Chemical have billions of dollars invested in capital equipment. Shell has billions of dollars invested in capital equipment that's, that's made for this, right? Um, and so it would be so dumb of me to sit there on the sidelines and be like, rah, I'm pure by, because I'm not working with the big bad. Right. Um, and, and, uh, you know, the, the way that we've, we've chosen to approach it is the exact opposite of saying, we hear you, you'd like to improve. You're, you're open to partnering so that you can improve. So 
let's partner with you. Let's help you improve, right? So, you know, in my ideal world, companies like Exxon and Shell and Dow and stuff like that are, are making huge volumes of biocomposite because it's it's applicable across most of their product portfolio. Like I'm not looking to, you know, replace engineered polymers that are supposed to be able to take 2000 degrees Fahrenheit and like, you know, Thanos just trying to like break it between his hands and stuff like, like, you know, that's not the stuff we're approaching, but the, the vast majority of general grade plastic is something that we can replace. So let's help the guys who already control the market do better. Right. So so partnerships are absolutely the lifeblood of what applied bioplastics is going to be in the future. I want to get away from producing our own plastics as soon as possible. I think that's, that's very important because, like you say, Dow Chemical, some of these companies, Shell, they've been around forever and they have the market. They have the people. They have the machinery to you know create something that can make a difference by using something that you're you're producing and partnering with them. I mean, your impact grows substantially. And that's that's really cool to think about. So lastly, Alex, I just I just want to ask you a few questions to finish off. And this is mainly just advice for our listeners um, and, and kind of hearing your opinion on different things. So the first thing I, I, I want to ask is, why do you think sustainability is important? Oh, gosh, that's such a large question. Um, I mentioned silver bullets earlier versus silver buckshot. Right. And um, we find ourselves locked in this battle against ourselves, against our own species and our own instincts to consume and to grow and to, to you know, embiggen yourself at the expense of others, right? Like it's kind of how uh, the, the system we live in works today, right? So, so, you know, this idea that maybe consuming everything in sight isn't a good idea is sort of new for, for a lot of us, right? Um, you know, there, there are societies that got outcompeted, uh, you know, Early on, I'm, I'm currently reading, um, you know, uh, People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, which talks about a lot of the early indigenous uh, uh, folks that, that lived in the Americas prior to the, you know, the arrival of the European settlers. And they had no idea about consumption. Right. Like the, the, or personal property or things like this. So they shared everything. They ensured that they lived in harmony with nature. So it's not an, a new idea, but it's new, it seems, to, to the West. Right. This idea that that, um, you know, maybe we don't need to eat everything in sight, buy everything in sight, uh, you know, have everything in sight. Um, so that that new idea is is coming with a with a host of challenges as well. Um, so why is it important? Well, the world is not finite, is, is not infinite. Right. Um, the, the world is finite. Um, there's only so much we can extract. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not planning on having children. Maybe you are. Um, and, and maybe a lot of your listeners are or have already had children. And I'm sure that they love them very, very much and would like to see the world that they that we currently have be improved for them or better yet, not uh, disimprove. Right. And that's the direction that we're headed. I mean, we've seen these wildfires, these massive floods, these, um, you know, like the, 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 the fact that I mean, yesterday it froze here in Texas. For Christ's sake, there's there's, there's three hundred thousand people without power in Texas because it froze. I've lived in Texas for thirty three years and it's never frozen like this before. And this is the second time in two years that this has happened, right? So we're seeing the effects of our behavior on the environment. I, I hesitate to call it global warming or climate change. Really, what it is is we have knocked off the balance of the natural systems that gave us life. It it, it happens to species that overeat their prey. If they, they eat too much prey, guess what? The, 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 you know, the, the wolf pack dies because there's no more food, 
right? And and so nature has a way of returning things to balance um, that's extremely violent, red in tooth and claw. And if we don't want to be the victims of that, we need to get our hands around our consumption. We need to restrain ourselves. Now, I, I think that this is a limited time problem. I think that as our technology improves, I've, I've been reading and watching The Expanse recently, so this is coming from that. But um, listen, you know, the, the belt, the asteroid belt, has this massive amount of resources. We're actually sending a, a mission uh, in October to one of them that this one asteroid contains more mineral wealth uh, than, than, than is on this planet. It, it's, a, it's like a hundred billion dollars worth of metal for every single person on earth today, right? So post-scarcity is coming, but we need to survive until then, right? And so that's why sustainability is important is, is that we need to stay alive long enough to get to post-scarcity. Because if we, if, we, if we screw that up now, if we screw up the next 50 years, there is going to be a violent natural reaction towards us and a lot of people are going to die. And I think there's there's a way to prevent that. And that's why sustainability is important. What would you say to young entrepreneurs, people growing up and, you know, they want to they want to build something in their life. They want to grow something that they they understand that they have a passion for entrepreneurship. What would you say to them in regards to sustainability and, and kind of tying entrepreneurship with sustainability? What would be your advice to them on looking for ideas and looking for ways to improve the environment through sustainability? I think the first one is make sure that you're proud of what you're doing. Imagine explaining what you're doing to your grandchildren or to your grandmother, right? How did you make your money? And if if that explanation worries you, then maybe you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Um, so that's the first thing is, is consider what you do. Your actions matter, especially as an entrepreneur. You know, if you're in the position to be an entrepreneur, you are one of the most fortunate people on the planet. Most people don't get to do that. Most people don't get to actualize their dreams and build a company around something that they're passionate about. I, I wake up every day and thank my lucky stars that I get to do what it is that I'm doing for a living. Um, this, this is the most fun job that I've ever had. It's actually the job I've held the longest. I've, I've been here for almost four years. Um, the longest job I held before that was two years, right? I, I always bounced around. And, and so Remember that you are fortunate. You are in an incredible position to create value for yourself and the people that you care about and also for the world. Now, tying that to sustainability, look, not every company is going to be a sustainability company, um, you know, and, and, and it shouldn't be. Right. So um, at the same time, it's everybody's responsibility to ensure that what they're doing isn't putting water back in the boat. Right. Like we're bailing. We're bailing water right now. That's what companies like Applied Bioplastics do. We're trying to buy the human race some time to figure out, you know, cold fusion, uh, you know, other, you know, cleaner forms of energy, things like that. Um, we're, we're just bailing out water. Please don't be the guy that pours water back in the boat, you know, like, like do things as sustainably as you can. Don't do crypto, you assholes. And I mean that. Put that in the podcast. Like, don't do crypto. It's terrible for the environment. It provides absolutely no value to anybody. Don't do that. Um, but, but, but beyond that, when you're, when you're doing another company, if you're doing a dropship company, use sustainable packaging, right? If you're, if you're making a physical item, please look at alternative materials besides plastic, right? Um, you know, if you're, if you're providing a service, ensure that that service can be done remotely. Right. Like one of the one of the ways that applied bioplastics controls our carbon footprint is that we weren't affected by the shutdowns with the pandemic because we're all remote and we've always been all remote. 
right? So we don't spend CO2 going to and from an office. So if you're a young entrepreneur and you want to build a business, guess what? I have 21 people across four continents uh, that have been working together for the last three years. And not one of us has, like most of our team members have never met each other in person. Right. So like you don't need an office. Please don't spend a bunch of money and a bunch of CO2 building an office and having your employees pointlessly commit back, you know, commute back and forth because they can do this via Zoom. Right. You don't need to watch your people every second of the day. Uh, so so build something remote. So those are just some thoughts for, for entrepreneurs there for you. So lastly, what can what can we do in our everyday lives to you know, increase levels of sustainability. So everyday people, someone like me, someone like, you know, my neighbor down the street, what what can we do every day? We're not in a company like Applied Bioplastics, but what can we do every day just in our normal lives around our house and our cars every day to increase levels of sustainability? So Preston, I, I, I love this interview, but I hate the question. I'll tell you why I hate the question. The reality is that like 78% of carbon emissions come from like five companies. Um, and, and what needs to happen there is pressure, is pressure for them to get better. And the only way we can do that, because you can't change what you buy. When you, when you buy a new electronic, it comes with the plastic that it comes with. You can't customize that. You can't say, hey, Dell, send me a computer that has bioplastic in it. They, they can't. They don't have a supplier, right? So, so you can't make those choices for them. Um, but what you can do is apply pressure. Um, and, and what I think the average person can really do in their day-to-day life is talk to their local politicians. And I know that it's like talking to a brick wall. And I know that if you live in a red state, it's completely pointless, but do it anyways, right? Like, like, you know, there's, there's, there's auto dialers that you can, you can look for. There's, there's auto mailers that you can look for. They're usually pretty cheap. Send letters, make phone calls, be annoying, right? Because the, the way that we fix this is through government action. And I say that as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, I know that there are some solutions that can be invented by people like me and, and, you know, companies like mine, but at the end of the day, it's really about what we want to allow in our society and who makes the rules for that. It's the politicians. So you need to put pressure on your local state and federal politicians that this is an issue of life and death for you and life and death for your kids because it is, and they're not taking us seriously. So look, write letters, make phone calls, but do something to tell these people who are in charge that this is important to you. Because in a democracy, supposedly, what the people care about matters. So that's what you can do. And unfortunately, there's not a lot that you can do to reduce your consumption. One person changing their habits makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. Uh, An entire nation of people making a change to their behavior, making a change to what they find is acceptable, acceptable, may make a difference. So with all that, um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Right. Well, Alex, this has been an incredible conversation. I've, I've definitely learned um, a lot speaking with you. And um, I want to thank you for, for coming on and sharing your story, sharing your expertise on bioplastics with all of our listeners. And it's really cool to sit down with people like you that are making a difference and that are trying to um, close the loop with a lot of these things. Thank you, Preston. I really appreciate the the opportunity to be on here. Um, if you're interested in uh, being a part of the uh, the applied bioplastics journey, you can go to raisegreen.com. It's just two words. Uh, raisegreen.com. We're doing a crowdfund there. The minimum investment amount is uh, one thousand uh, dollars. Otherwise, you can follow us at appliedbioplastics.com, uh, a bioplastics on Twitter, uh, and our Instagram account, which is also applied bioplastics. So feel free to follow us there or on LinkedIn. And, and uh, thank you so much again, Preston, for having us.